Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I did not have any training. None of us had any training. So we were all like self-taught. And our first startup capital was 300 bucks. Back then, entrepreneur was not fancy. It was actually quite lame. I remember I was calling my father and I said, yeah, dad. You know, and I was like thinking like, I'm going to be like you. I'm like, dad, I finally uh, registered the business and I'm the CEO because I was the first CEO. And he was like, I'm so disappointed because I wish you did something proper with your life. And that was like, boom. But in several years, we've kind of, we've seen that it was not boom, but it was like rather boom. This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Maria Sirotkina. She is a serial entrepreneur and world traveler who has been to over 50 countries. She holds an MBA and is proficient in five languages, Russian, Arabic, French, Spanish, and English, in which we'll be conducting this interview today. She also co-founded her first business, J-Study, in 2007 at age 18. It's an educational travel company. She founded it in her home country of Russia and has since scaled that business to be a national level tour operator with five office locations serving thousands of students and generating eight figures in annual revenue. In 2016, she followed her passion for nomadic travel and founded a co-living space in the Canary Islands called Rest Station Co-Living, and has since grown that from one to four properties and hosted over a thousand nomadic residents. In 2017, Maria co-founded Nomad Train, an opportunity to take the legendary Trans-Siberian Railway from Moscow to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, together with a group of 30 nomads, which runs once a year. Nomad Train is facilitated by Russian-speaking program leaders, and each stopover location on the train trip, which takes two weeks, includes accommodations, 
access to co-working space with reliable Wi-Fi, and organized excursions on the ground. Maria is also the co-founder of Co-Living Hub, a nonprofit organization that supports co-living hosts and founders around the world to improve their local co-living experiences with the overall goal of supporting the growth of the co-living movement worldwide. She is hosting the first ever Co-Living Hub Conference next month, where 100 founders of co-living spaces from around the world will descend on the island of Gran Canaria to strategize with each other about how to shape and grow the co-living industry. Maria, welcome to the show. Wow. Thanks for having me, Matt. Well, you've done a lot of stuff, and I am so excited to have you here. We should just (laughs) set the scene for people right now. I just read through the fact that you are the, the the founder of the Rest Station Coworking Space, which is exactly where we are doing this interview right now. That is true. (laughs) And I am actually a resident here for the week, staying at the Rest Station Co-Living Space. Yeah, you know, that seems like a nice joke. Who's the guest? Am I the guest of the podcast or are you the guest of Rest Station? So like, you know, we're a guest in the guest. That's (laughs) exactly right. You are my guest while I am your guest. That is amazing. It's It's a reciprocal relationship. And you and I have just opened a beautiful yeah, exactly. bottle of Spanish red wine, which you helped pick out. And I'm going to let you describe what exactly yeah. we are drinking here. It's actually an amazing mix of Cabernet Sauvignon, a little bit of Tempranillo, Shiraz, and it's really, really good. Well, we like to provide a nice wine experience <laughs> exactly, here on the Maverick exactly. Show for our of guests. Course, have to Part prepare. of that hosting experience, you know? Yeah, of course, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So I am super excited to have you here. So first of all, I mean, in terms of me being a customer for your businesses, I'm staying at your co-living space. I'm working at your co-working space. I'm here in the Canary Islands for a week. So I'm having that experience. And then later this year, I'm going to be a customer for another one of your businesses because they've already signed up for the Nomad Train experience. So, <laughs> so I, am, I am super stoked to, uh, to do this interview with you because I think a lot of your business accomplishments have been absolutely amazing. And it's been super incredible to spend time with you this week and really get to know you and understand what you do and how you built your businesses. And so I, I definitely wanted to bring you on the show and, uh, and share a lot of that value with our listeners. So let's just maybe start back a little bit with your origin story, your upbringing in Russia, and maybe talk a little bit about that and how you became passionate about world travel and decided to start studying languages and wanting to travel the world and experience other cultures. And where did that whole evolution come from? Yeah, sure. I like saying that I'm from a small town. So I really like this part of my story because uh, I was not born into a big family of travelers like many of my, I guess, like university mates. Later on, I studied in like diplomatic corps and was very much of a community of well-traveled children. But I clearly didn't belong from like to that. Was my hometown is pretty close to Moscow uh, in Russian standards. It's just like, you know, 700 kilometers. But... Uh, at the same time, it's very isolated. And my family, they're entrepreneurs, they're small business owners. 
And I've always dreamt of being able to travel the world. And actually, my dream career has always been international journalism. And my first jobs were writing uh, reports for like local newspapers. And then I entered the university to get a degree in international journalism on a full scholarship. And that's how I pretty much started traveling the world with this perspective that I could somehow bring a change from this side. But to be honest, this career didn't stick. Yeah. <laughs> and how did you specifically get interested in studying Arabic? Because I know you studied Arabic academically and yeah. then you, you and I have both spent a lot of time That's in the right. Middle East. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another cool coincidence, I think so. <laughs> so I can't really say white specifically Arabic, but I definitely didn't want to waste my time in the university. So from the very beginning, I was kind of thinking that I want to invest the four years of my life into something meaningful. So I basically had a choice of either being assigned, that's what happens in like, at least in my school, in a diplomatic school, either get assigned an easy language and an easy language is like French, Italian, German, Spanish, whatever, or I get to pick and then I have to pick something more complex. So I picked Arabic. Uh, so I was thinking that it, it must be enriching. It's great. I love, I love, love, love the language. I love the poetry and it kind of uh, changes so much into the way you think and the way you perceive the world and also the type of cultures you learn about. It's fascinating. Yeah, 100%. I totally agree. And I've had a lot of really amazing experiences in the Middle East. And Same so, here, yeah. Yeah, so I've spent time in Palestine, Lebanon, you know, sort of the Levant region, as well as North Africa. I've spent about a year in Egypt and time in Morocco and all that kind of stuff. And I know you've spent time in a lot of those places as well. So what was it like? What was sort of your first experience in the Middle East? Like coming from Russia, mm. where was your? Where did you first land in the Middle East and how did you get there? Yeah, so my first country in the Middle East was Jordan for like uh, a year abroad. So it was something similar to an exchange program or in between our two universities. So I was a student at the University of Jordan. And yeah, so I didn't really know what to expect, to be honest. For everyone out there who knows a little bit of Arabic, there's a little bit of well, I don't want to say a little bit. It's actually a big lie. There's a major difference in between studying Arabic at school because you're just studying classic Arabic and then actually getting to speak it on the street because there are two different things. So basically it was arriving for me, arriving to Jordan and not being able to understand any single thing. <laughs> it's like literally, that's not dialects. There's just like two different languages what people write and what people speak and what people like, you know, like this type of things that you hear on TV, you will never hear on the street. It's just, it's just like different hundred percent. Yeah. But it was amazing. I was, I even got a part-time job and then I got like more of a professional job while living in the Middle East. So it was very, very welcoming, sometimes too welcoming. So I decided to leave. <laughs> it's uh yeah it's amazing and it's really interesting you know to your point that you when you study arabic you study modern standard arabic or it's yeah. called fusha right yeah and if you know that and you understand that that's what you need to be a journalist right if you're going to be exactly. speaking on the news or if you're going to be writing you know for a formal newspaper type of thing but if you actually go to an arabic-speaking country no one speaks that on the street. And if you attempt to speak that locally, it basically is, you know, for English speaking people, it's basically like speaking Shakespearean 
English, exactly. like old yeah, yeah. English, right? That's a, that's a perfect comparison. Is exactly how you would sound. So you would yeah. sound ridiculous if you were to just speak that just, to like shop owners and like local people on the street and hang out in conversation at cafes and that kind of stuff. And so you need to learn, you know, to converse with people. You need to learn the local dialect, which also varies from 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 place to place. But you know, when I was I studied uh, Arabic as well uh, for a little bit. And learned the Fusha, and then also my the first dialect that I learned was also the Palestinian sort yeah. of Shami the Levant region dialect as well. But then later, after that, I went to Egypt, oh, yeah. and I lived in Egypt, and totally that's a totally different, different, world, different dialect. Yeah. So to communicate with people there, you need to learn, then learn the Egyptian dialect. Yeah, absolutely. Well, although you know, like for most native speakers to Arabic, Egyptian is not an issue because what, that's what you hear all the time on soap operas. Because Egypt is the major producer of soap operas. But unfortunately, I was not that much into it when I went to Egypt after as well. I faced the same issue as yourself. <laughs> right, and the thing is that if you learn, I think that's true. Like if you learn the Egyptian dialect and you speak it in other Arab yeah. countries, you are right that the majority of people will be allowed to understand you but then you need to be able to understand them so if you oh go God, over yeah. further just down you know uh, in north africa to morocco yeah you totally totally different and you've spent time in morocco as well right as well but i never bothered after after the third arabic country i stopped bothering about learning dialects <laughs> like i do apologize you just but... you just spoke french in morocco right yeah i just spoke a little bit of french and a little bit of like classic arabic i didn't bother anymore about the comments about like people laughing at me i'm like you know what it's like somebody seriously tricked me into this language because I thought I was going to learn one and be able to speak in 23 countries. That's how many countries speak Arabic. But in reality, I learned one and then I had to unlearn and then I had to relearn three new languages. I mean, like, geez, that's not what I actually wanted. <laughs> exactly. That's totally true, right? You yeah. can say you can say Arabic is the I think it's like the top maybe the fifth most spoken language in yeah. the world, yeah, certainly yeah, yeah. in the top 5. Oh, well, 23 countries is quite a good number. I mean, like can German language compete with that? No. Right. Right, yeah. exactly. But there's so many different dialects, so that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, it that's, makes it impossible. That's amazing. And then your, but your first time staying in Morocco, you were telling me that story about how, what was it? You were a student and you were in oh, Russia God. and yeah. you got accepted to a program. What was that? Ah, yes. That's another thing about uh, learning these difficult languages that you really need to practice. And I was aware. So I was looking for like all these opportunities to be able to be exposed to it. So I won another scholarship that was amazing. It was like, you know, covering my lodging and food and uh, tuition fees in Morocco in the capital in Rabat. The only thing is that I had to get there and as a I think it was a second year student uh, in my home university. So I was like totally broke. I was still working as a journalist part-time, obviously, and doing some minor translation gigs. But from Moscow to Morocco, there was one way, one K flight. So was like totally not able to afford that. So I just decided that I'm going to search the internet and find a way how I can actually fly to Morocco that is not from Moscow. So the easiest thing that seemed back then, well, I'm not sure if it's the easiest, but like, you know, the cheapest flight was from Paris. So I just bought that one. It was like, I think it was close to like 50 bucks EasyJet Paris to Morocco. And then the only thing is just that I needed to get to Paris. So I got a Schengen visa 
And pretty much uh, my solution was to hitchhike to Paris. The only problem is that I had five-day long visa. And within five days, I needed to cross from Moscow to Morocco. And to make it even more complicated, this had to be done, like entering through Finland. So it means St. Petersburg, Finland. For those of you who can imagine the map, it makes it, basically makes a giant hook on like Eurasia. So, and then all the way down from Finland, Denmark, Germany, France, getting to Paris. Yeah, that's, you know, uh, <laughs> that's the price I paid for free education. <laughs> but I made it. I made it. What an epic adventure too as a student. It's quite I mean, epic, yeah. I, I mean, I think that goes to show too just the ingenuity that, you know, when we are students or we are low budget, you know, for any reason, right? A lot of people want to travel the world and and if you're motivated enough, there are very creative, very inexpensive ways to get around, to stay places. They have, you know, couch surfing opportunities where you can literally have free accommodations mm. with people that are willing to host you. And like you said, you just figured out how to get from Moscow all the way to Paris without paying any money for your transportation. Mm. Yeah. And like, I mean, there's a lot of these creative, ingenuitive ways. And a lot of those give rise, I think, to the travel adventures and meeting interesting people and having just really, you know, incredible stories to tell. Of course, but I think this adds up to your life experience. And I just learned so much about a lot of things, including like about myself and about the world on this trip. I don't want to promote hitchhiking because of course there are some risks to it. And more so if you're, I guess, a single female traveler. But at the same time, the more you travel, the more you definitely explore and you meet different people, people that uh, you wouldn't typically meet in your normal life and different creative ways of traveling. Not like, you know, you just hop from from a resort to resort, just getting a little bit, going a little bit differently, you will end up meeting people that uh, are not in your uh, typical social circles. So and you'll definitely get richer and uh, you'll learn about opportunities and stuff. So it's always amazing. Yeah. And you've traveled to a number of really interesting places. We were just talking about travel and you were asking me about my itinerary for the year. And I told you that in June, I'm going to go to Lagos, Nigeria. Hmm. And you were like, oh, yeah, I lived there for a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. What was oh. that like? And how did you get there? What was that about? Lagos is actually one of my secretly favorite favorite places. I guess I don't even want to admit it to myself, but I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> it was like, great. Lagos is one of the places that doesn't have enough rules in place, so you can do whatever. And nobody cares. You just kind of um, enjoy the life. You just enjoy it every day. And nobody really talks about, especially like locals, you don't really talk about uh, grand plans for the future. But every day is a party kind of celebration. I was surrounded by my amazing teammates that were local because we were I was a part of a nonprofit a UN it was a UN affiliated uh, nonprofit that was uh, working on some IT development in the region so it was really really important project and you know it was, it was really nice at the same time I was part of a group of expats and it was a pretty cool community where each one had a story so I'm very diverse. So also like people from oil and gas, people from nonprofits, people from financial sector, consultants, and also different level and like adventure seekers. So kind of a weird mix, you know? Yeah, I'm so excited. I spent a month last year in East Africa. 
and I was in Nairobi, Kenya was my yeah. base for the month. And then I went to Kampala, Uganda, and I went to Tanzania, oh. went to Dar es Salaam, and I went to the island of Zanzibar. And I was just so enamored with East Africa and just the way, I mean, just, I mean, how sweet and wonderful people were, but also just like how the nightlife, yeah. I mean, it was like unbelievable. But one of the things was about that was, you know, I mean, the nightclubs are amazing, right? And I was just hearing all of these Afro beats and all this music I'd never heard before. And I'm like shazamming all this stuff to be like, what is this? Why have I never heard this? And what was amazing is that probably at least 50% of the music of the Afro beats that you'll hear at any of these clubs around Africa all comes from Nigeria. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's literally like struck me as like just understanding like this is literally like this right now, like the center of like the music scene yeah. of all of Africa and like the art scene and all this stuff. And then I was just, I've been talking to these other people about, oh, yeah, I want to go to Nigeria. I want to go to I've just been hearing it. And so I was like, yo, let's just do it. Let's organize a trip to Lagos. We'll just go for a month, get some Airbnbs. And we'll just like whoever wants to come can come and we'll just hang out, you know, go to a co-working space and work and then just like, you know, see the yeah. city and, and, and go out at night and go on the weekends. And stuff. So we're just going to go do it in June. I'm so excited. I'm just so wonderless now. <laughs> no, seriously. When I hear somebody speaking about Africa, I just have like my, my best memories with Africa, to be honest. And also like some real, real like cool stories. I think it was the first year of me running the business. And uh, we had this international uh, partner. So my business, that's the one that was started in 2007, or maybe it was the second year. It, is, it was not that big anyway. We're at the very, very early stage of it. And we had this international partner that somehow found out about us. And uh, they are owners of uh, like a, a big international chain of schools that wanted to work with us. They didn't know how big we were. Apparently, they, we seemed much bigger than we were, maybe because of our advertising or something. I don't know. Or maybe because of our HTML website. Uh, but they showed up in our office. And uh, so he's the from the family of the owners, dressed up very nicely. And it's a tiny, tiny office, much smaller than your bedroom. <laughs> and there's like uh, the three of us. Uh, basically, uh, he starts telling us the story about his business and how many schools they have in different locations. And I got really interested in his school in Cape Town. I'm like, wow, Cape Town, that sounds so interesting. Because back then, I've never been to Africa. I've never been to Africa. Oh, no, I was like, can I maybe like visit your school in Africa? And he was just like so confident and saying that, you know what? I can invite you to my school to Africa, but under one condition, you should send me a student. You can like, you know, sell it to your clients, but you can never do that because Russians never buy educational things in Africa. And so I was like, okay, deal. Basically in a couple of weeks, he had three like almost year long sales. So he actually paid my flights to Cape Town and a month long accommodation. And uh, I met my future husband there. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, let's let's use that as a transition to talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey, which is quite amazing in terms of the diversity of spaces that you have gone into and how early you started. So maybe just start with when you founded J-Study mm -hmm. at age 18 mm -hmm. and take us through the evolution of that company because you've now scaled it up to the point where you're able to generate eight figures of gross revenue per year and have thousands of students and you're, you know, I mean, it's at a very impressive scale now, but maybe just take us through the history of that company, the founding of it and, you know, how you scaled it mm. to that size. 
the three of us that started it and I wouldn't be able to do it without my two partners. And I think over the course of the of the years, you know, pretty impressive. I've never thought that it's actually already been 12 years because we were all like little puppies, like seriously, we were all 18 year olds. We we're all from the same university. Actually, I met one of my business partners at a camp when we were 14. And another one was our dorm uh, mate from the university. And each one of us had different career aspirations. It was the three of us from pretty much the very beginning. So Kiro's my business partner, who's currently the CEO of the company. He did like uh, the first trials uh, with, uh, let's say, the niche. And basically from 2000. Seven, we started generating small sales. So in the beginning, there was nothing of a rocket science. As I said, there was an HTML website. Can you explain also what the what's the offer, business model? What, yeah, and what and specifically what the offering was. What, yeah. what you developed, oh, yeah, what sure. you were selling, sure, and sure, sure. all that. Yeah. So in the very beginning, we were just selling language courses. In the very very beginning, we were selling language courses to our mates from the university because we were all studying those different languages in the University of International Relations. And so the university was full of demand. It was like, you know, demand-generating machine. We just put a poster at the information board, and that's how we would be generating sales. That would be like, you know, a poster would be, I don't know, 30 cents or maybe three cents. I don't remember. So poster, we we were designing it ourselves. And then like Edwards were dirt cheap, free, almost. That seemed like a lot of money, even like those. <laughs> in the very beginning, there were posters. We were selling language courses, pretty much always in like Europe, sorry, English in London, and maybe Manchester, but our first market was really London. So it was offering people the opportunity to travel to, to, travel to an London English-speaking location yeah, and, and study, study English, English there. Yeah, exactly. So there would be like a two, three-week immersion course, very intensive. And typically over the course of student break. So our first clients were students. Then we kind of started uh, going after student groups. So like slightly younger population. So like children with their teachers. So with their English teachers. And uh, since then, it's pretty much our major market. That's awesome. So what I drew from that as well is that you guys bootstrapped this and you were starting it and you were 18 years old and you had oh, yeah. very little to no money at all. Yeah. And you were using these sort of guerrilla marketing, if you will, types of tactics with posters and putting stuff up and finding people and just mm. hustling to get your first sales and then starting to reinvest that revenue into very inexpensive forms of advertising at the time. Yeah, of course. And well, our first startup capital was 300 bucks. So yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty lean startup. Very lean. <laughs> so, and uh, the 300 bucks uh, was enough to actually register a company when we needed already. But first, I think the first year we, we just, we were working just to cover our expenses and, and just like making small cash. But you know, like whatever is small cash now back then was just paying our coffee and it was amazing. We could like go for lunch. And <laughs> yeah. And then, and then from there, what has been the scaling process of that business to get it to mm-hmm. an eight figure revenue point that it is now? Yeah. So from there, we figured out our key metrics. So things that we really, really, really need to pay attention to. And we started working on maximizing our numbers. So maximizing the revenues and minimizing costs. 
since really, I think, liked working together. So that really helped. It was not, back then, the very important thing is that entrepreneur was not fancy. It was actually quite lame. It meant you were kind of like maybe lazy and weren't really doing anything with your life. And so you just call yourself an entrepreneur, right? I remember I was calling my father when we finally registered the company. Yeah, because I didn't live with my parents uh, for like a couple of years, two, three years already. So I called my father and I said, yeah, dad, you know, and I was like thinking like, I'm going to be like you. I'm like, dad, I've finally registered the business and I'm the CEO because I was the first CEO. And he was like, I'm so disappointed because I wish you did something proper with your life. And that was like, boom. But they, yeah, in several years, we've kind of, we've seen that it was not boom, but it was like rather boom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so yeah, scaling. Yeah. We just, you know, we just worked on uh, getting more and more and more clients into the pipeline, maintaining control of our costs. Very typical things. Right. Very lean and very sustainable. I think it was very sustainable. Right. That's amazing. I mean, and as an 18-year-old CEO and sort of being able to figure out what the... And I think a lot of times when you are bootstrapping and you really understand the value of every single dollar. Oh, yeah. Every single dollar. Sure. I mean, it just comes from the pocket left to right. It does, right? And so your your understanding of the importance of ROI mm. on every single dollar spent and what return are you getting on it and how to optimize that and all that kind of stuff. So that that is remarkable, though, that at that young of an age, you were able to just sort of see that and do that. I mean, did you have any kind of, you know, did you have... How did you learn that? Did you have training in that? Did you have mentorship in that? Mm. Like, how did you learn how to sort of optimize your sales and then build your Mm -hmm. business in that way? So, well, actually, no, I did not have any training. None of us had any training. So we were all like self-taught and uh, we were all studying pretty much the same thing. And it was all just like purely practice. The only thing that we did was watching (laughs) how much money we've got in the, you know, how much cash we've got. That's like, seriously, that is, I think, the, the, the main thing for every business. And so since we were any financing or loans, whatever you can think of, nothing was, was an option. The only source of security was cash. So sometimes yeah, we wouldn't even be able to apply for insurance, wouldn't be accepted because of like different factors. So it was just like very, very old school way. And I always wanted to get the training. So pretty much I'm the only one in the company who later on went on and studied business. And my two partners are like, you know, we're, they're still doing great and uh, like still pretty much no business degree. But as journalists by education, we think we get most of the information from media. It's really amazing how much you can learn by yourself if you are dedicated yeah, that's awesome. So you were you were an 18-year-old CEO, built the business, and then decided to go and do your MBA after that. Uh, yeah, I kind of, uh, we shifted positions with my co-founder, I think in two or three years after starting the company, and he stepped in to become the CEO, and I went to live my semi-nomadic life. So I would be spending half a year here and there and coming back to Moscow, and sometimes I would be living for several years abroad, flying into Moscow, 
every month or so if I needed to meet the clients or something. So, or not even Moscow, sometimes like it would be London or Berlin or whatever. So yeah, so I went to live the, this more of a nomadic lifestyle much earlier and both of my partners are still based in Russia. What would you say in your entire 12 years of as you built and scaled that company, what would be the primary leverage points? Like were there moments when, you know, as you were testing things, you were trying new stuff and all of a sudden like you just had like big like sort of push. leap forward or like you all of a sudden just got a whole bunch more customers or there were like, were mm-hmm. there moments of like big escalation or jumps forward and what were those? Yeah, definitely. We've had a couple of big leaps. So, and one of those, I think those, uh, I clearly remember the day when uh, my business this partner, Carol, he came back from his trip to Toronto and he called me out for a coffee in the park and we're sitting in the park. I think, you know, like this is the learning that can be applicable to really, really any business. And I've applied it later on as well. Uh, so he's like, you know, Maria, I found it like fascinating. So he was visiting a business partner and they're a language school in Toronto. And what they did, they just gathered together their top educational agents from all over the world. Pretty much the educational agents are the people who promote the business. And for a small school, I mean, it's relatively small. It's not like a, a global chain or anything. I think they've got like two schools joined together, but not, again, not anything of a hundred thousands of students or anything. And still they invested a lot in building a relationship with their partners by bringing partners from different countries, organizing like training for them in person, really curating the content, really thinking of how they're going to appraise the partners, how they're going to make us as partners feel special. So he like so my partner Kirill came back from this kind of experience of being this special partner and he was like what happens if we create this special kind of a club for partners. So we're just sitting with him and brainstorming and like thinking so who are our our special partners? He's like well, you know, the people that always come back to us are uh, language teachers who travel with their students. And that is true. They pretty much travel every year. And we're like, okay, let's think how we can curate this exclusive experience for our language teachers. Pretty much the same year we conceptualized, well, not even the same year, you know, the same bench in the same park. We conceptualized J Teachers, which is an event for teachers, a teacher conference where we invite educators from abroad to share knowledge with uh, our partner teachers who are Russian. And we create this special event for them. Uh, We uh, always host it in a five-star hotel with amazing views uh, for the whole day. We fly teachers in from the whole country. So if the event is hosted in Moscow, we would have uh, teachers flying from uh, 10, 15 different cities and we'll be paying for their accommodation and for like, you know, everything. So they would like, you know, as a school teacher... They're really, we're the only ones who could do that. And we've been working with, like, since then, I think it was, uh, uh, we had this conversation with Carol maybe like six years ago or something. And this teacher club has grown massively. Now there is a wait list to join J Teachers. And our last event, we hosted actually in the residence of the British ambassador in Moscow. And that was also quite outstanding because the British embassy, they were like very open about 
collaborating and co-hosting this event with us. So we're like, all right, we're on the right track. And so how and so what was the impact of that on the overall on the business? business? Yeah, it's how just did that we kind of figured, you know, we we figured that uh, this is the core group of users in speaking kind of in the modern language and they repeat customers they're the ones who create volume and then looking at our numbers i like i don't remember now specifically but uh, pretty much their volume of 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 this club stands for well roughly 70% of our overall business now and it grew pretty much from like maybe like around 30 to 70% but they're the most stable and they're the kind of a that's the cheapest marketing for us so you put your offering in front of the teachers yeah and they then mm-hmm. extend the offering to their students and yeah, refer yeah, yeah. you their students no, they don't even refer they just you know they do our job they take the decision for students and uh, basically when they need to decide if there is like a tradition that they travel annually for like language practice to let's say any language speak uh, sorry english speaking country so that could be like i don't know malta or england and uh, they always change schools and we're always their provider got it so the teachers are your yeah, actual just, customers exactly and they actually like they just announce the price and the location for their group Right, so they have an entire group of students. Exactly. And that's a way for you exactly. to get, instead of going directly to each individual student, yeah. you go to the teachers and then you have a class of however many Absolutely. students of like as 10, one. 5, 10, 15. So we don't market to anyone individually. So this is like, we are working with our B2B. But it's just that, you know, it's not a traditional B2B. Right. That's a very interesting concept. Yeah, it's just that you need to identify who is your, you know, who's your promoter who's the actual customer. And in many businesses, it's very not direct. Maybe the secretary uh, is your main customer, not the CEO who's going to be using the actual like item. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting because instead of going individually one at a time yeah. and selling the opportunity to like parents of a kid and going one at a time, you're going to where the students already are and then selling to the teachers and sure. then bringing the entire group yeah, yeah. on the trip. Course, That's awesome. because then you know, like sometimes, as much as we want to, I don't know, be trendy and market maybe to 15 to 20 year olds, and as much as then 15 20 year olds will be promoting this to their parents, the actual decision is taken by the teacher. And when the teacher says, Well, well, kiddos, this year plan is, and that's it, right. Right. So so that's a really interesting leverage point. So technically your customer who's actually paying the money are the individual students or their, the parents of the students. Yeah, the parents. But your business approach was to build really tight relationships with the teachers and give them an amazing experience, which is way beyond anything that they've experienced yeah. before. And then, of course, they want to be part of it. Yeah, and the trust. Us. I mean, it's, it's just relationship building. You know, it's pretty much what we've spoken about. Like in every business, it's every business is about building relationships. You really need to take care of the people and then they will love you back. It's as simple as that. We're not cheap on things that we provide. Again, like at the same time, I think we also do a really good job in providing service. It doesn't mean that we have to cut corners then providing the agency experience, but uh, competing with other agencies in the country, provided everything is the same, we definitely win on the relationship side. So I guess, you know, that's the learning that I wanted to convey. Make sure that you build relations with your key players. So because it's really damn important. 
Yeah, that's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about your one of your other businesses. We'll go to the next one. The co-living yeah. space that you founded here where we are right now in the Canary Islands, uh, the island of Gran Canaria. Can you talk, and let's just start before we even talk about the business, mm-hmm. which I do want to talk about. But before we even talk about that, I would love to just ask you to explain the concept of co-living sure. for some people that may be listening who have literally never even heard the term. What is co-living? How mm-hmm. does it work logistically? And what are the values and the attributes that you have come to love and be passionate about co-living? Sure. So basically, co-living is a concept of sharing living space and uh, the community. For me, typically, co-living would be living and working with uh, like-minded people. I think this is a very important component of uh, co-living, not just sharing the accommodation, but also, in a way, mindset and the attitude, I guess, like the approach to life. Because there are many different now already co-living spaces, and we would all have slightly different focuses. So there would be, I don't know, for example, senior co living spaces. There'll be more nomadic co-living spaces like ours, like talking about restation. And there'll be more student co-living spaces. This is like, you know, the most common thing. There'll be more like even residential family co-living spaces. This is now all on the rise. I'm like, I really love seeing it grow. That's awesome. And how did you come to become passionate about Mm -hmm. co-living spaces. What has your personal experience been that's led you to be sort of committed to this concept? Mm -hmm. So my personal experience comes from living for a really long time on the road because I actually, at some point, when you travel so long, you miss relating with people. So building a strong and deep connection And this does not really happen when you stay in the shared accommodation and people change all the time. It also does not happen when you stay at your own place because you're like too lonely there. So I had this amazing experience of randomly sharing a a guest house with two other, let's say, nomads. And that was in Costa Rica. We crossed paths for a month and we stayed at the same place that was totally not fit for long-term living and we were all working remotely. I think this kind of, you know, this clicked. So there was Alex, an IT entrepreneur from New York, and there was Corey, my amazing gay friend from Australia. So there's three of us and we would just open laptops in the mornings, work together in this guest house. And this was our story for a month. I was amazing. It was actually one of the best months of my life. Just like literally co-living with people that I'd never met before. But we just kind of stayed there. Yeah, it was like struggles, daily ocean dips. It was pretty amazing. And then like I always thought that that should be everywhere. This this like experience should exist everywhere. And that's uh, several years later, we opened our station. That's amazing. So, all right, so let's talk about that. How did you decide where you wanted to open a co-living space? What was the process about deciding on the island of Gran Canaria, other than the fact that it's basically paradise and, yeah, it's, insanely, yeah, yeah. and it's insanely amazing here, <laughs> <laughs> which may be a big part of it, and if it is, you can say uh, that, um, but what was sort of your deciding process to open it here? Yeah, so I just scored, actually, I think it was, 10 locations, 15 locations on my list. Probably I should go back to the list to check it out. Maybe there's something interesting. Uh, they were all locations in Europe because I didn't want to leave Europe uh, for the sake of like business security. I was living in Madrid and I kind of started like in the positive experience of not having that many fluctuations. 
comparing to Russia. So there was, yeah, definitely Europe and there were other places on the map. Location was important. Time zone was important. Urban beach was important. So, you know, on the balance of probabilities, Gran Canaria and Las Palmas specifically, so not Gran Canaria as an island, but Las Palmas as a city was crucial one. And we just moved here. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And so then once you moved here and you decided on the place and that it had everything you wanted in terms of a geographic location, what then was the business process of founding mm -hmm. the co-working space and, and building it from there? Yeah, good question. It was not a long process. <laughs> it was actually all pretty fast because I did some prep work. Before moving to Gran Canaria, there was like uh, quite a bit of marketing and product uh, market fit exercise. It's taking some energy. I moved here in August and in October, Restation was already open. It was wow. the first property, the first property. Can you say a little bit about the product market fit exercise that you did? Yeah. Well, I mean, there was like the whole bunch of exercises, not like one, but that was really important for me to understand who is this specific user of co-living space because I can explain who am I, but what makes me similar to other people and how I can find them potentially and what's the easiest and the cheapest way because you definitely want to spread the word about that. And I think, like I mentioned before, I'm not a big money spender on ads. And with my first business, that was exactly that. We just kind of identified the group and then we went after it. So I wanted... I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. To replicate that, identify the specific group and hit the button. So, Can you share a little bit about what that, exactly? Oh, well, about the exact tactics. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. So specifically, basically, I think first thing I did, oh, I had uh, two interns that I hired at my business school and there was loads of research on social media. Very, very important. But, you know, I was really new to the business. I had no idea who are digital nomads and how big that was. Although I was myself a digital nomad, but it's just that this term was so new. I mean, like, it's still kind of new. So we did loads of research. We ended Reddit on Twitter. We uh, posted a lot of research. We posted surveys. We tried to generate different campaigns, a little bit of virality here and there on Twitter, and we saw what resonated more and with which types of audience. And 
really, like we had 100 people answering the survey. And I know that everybody says that you should survey people. What's the difference, right? In between people who say and people who say that, uh, yeah, I hear it all the time. It's like, you actually have to do that. You actually have to make people answer your questions and then read and understand what exactly they're saying. So all these things, it was so, so, so super helpful. So by the time we had 100 people, answering the survey, I think I pretty much, and, and yeah, so after the survey, I went and interviewed a lot of people in person, spoke to them, asked them difficult questions. Then I understood what was the whole thing that people are looking for and what we should do and then how we should put it together on the landing page. So I think uh, that was that was the exercise. Awesome. And then when you were, when you decided and you... Mm-hmm. We're going to found the co-living slash co-working space Mm -hmm. also because that's another piece of it, right? That there's also an attached co-working space, which is basically an office with 24-7 Wi-Fi that everyone that lives in the co-living space can also work in the co-working space. So it's it's a combined thing. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided upon the culture that you wanted to create for Mm -hmm. your co-living space and then what you did to actually found, launch, build, and occupy your Mm -hmm. co-living space because you did it very quickly. I mean, you were zero to full occupancy in what, like two months? Yeah, those two months. Those really quickly. That's amazing. Can you talk about how you did that? All of this was quite some work. Um, First thing is building was a hard work to negotiate with landlords because we are on the leasing model and it's very important to kind of, you know, like uh, for us to explain our value proposition without having any track record in real estate. That's difficult. Yeah, you know. Right, right. yeah. So <laughs> somebody so, coming from real estate. So you're, so, okay, so so just, you're, so your business model was you were going to lease a building. Sure, yeah. Right, that had a certain number of rooms. Yeah, units, yes. Units and all that kind of stuff as well as shared common space. And so you needed to identify the building. And then once you identified buildings, you had to negotiate yeah. with the yeah, landlords. Yeah, pretty much so. And we had to be moving fast because it's just the, the market is moving fast. Good type of property doesn't sit there. So pretty much when you see that, you're like, okay, am I taking this? Because yes, yes, uh, yeah, I should take that. <laughs> and, uh, and, but you know, like that was the beauty, that's the beauty of the whole leasing model because you really, okay, you're not losing millions, you're losing something. You're like losing maybe thousands, but that's fine. It's still like kind of a testing phase. I know it was like, I told myself that we're going to test that. We're going to have six months. If nothing works, that's fine. I lose six months and I lose, I don't know how much money, but like as much as I can burn in six months. And that's it. So after six months, we already scaled up. And so, yeah, so like the second part of your question, so what we did to market that, like, so we had this marketing strategy already pre-built. So we knew the type of communities we're going after. The culture really helped. So the culture of the space. So really knew we don't want to be really party. Yeah. So we're going to be deep work and we're going to be about uh, getting shit done. And we're going to be about entrepreneurship, about productivity, this type of place. And this is just the decision. Right. Right. There's no right or wrong. Right. Right. This was your decision, but you but by yeah. creating a defined culture, right? Yeah, I think so. It's just about like personal preferences and also uh, somehow naturally we ended up attracting 
this type of residence in the first instance. Right. And that's it. Like, you know, it was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then other people want to come here. So then yeah. now, that's you it. know, I'm choosing to stay here on a Grand Canaria. Yeah. You've, it's like, oh, yeah. It's just, you know, similar people alike. Yeah. Like, you've got uh, a Sean Tierney who listeners will know from episode 21 is also staying here yeah, exactly. right yeah, now. Sean. And so, and so you're, you're sort of attracting a particular type of people by setting a culture. Yeah, I think culture is something that definitely works to your advantage once you take certain decisions and stick to them. Right. And then and then how did you promote and market and mm-hmm. make that target market? So you said this is our culture, these are the type of people we want to attract. And yeah. and we know that these types of people want to come to Grand Canaria and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So you did that market research. And then how did you promote the Mm -hmm. co-living opportunity, market yourselves, and get it in front of your target market? Okay, here are several things. Why I chose Gran Canaria in the first instance is because it was already on the nomad map to some extent, you know, like I was not coming to the complete unknown, like tropical island in the middle of nowhere. So Gran Canaria was already something. And... I think there was, it was definitely lacking this. So that's why we actually we established restation in Ground Canaria. And then it took very short time. So we, we did a lot of event marketing. So we hosted masterminds and skillshares and the type of event that will attract people that we like <laughs> and detract people that we don't like. And then it's just, you know, the word of mouth because, you know, nomads plan really last minute. That's it. It's very simple. I think everybody who's hanging out in Lisbon or in like Morocco, that is just like around the corner after hearing a few things about that there is a new whatever co-living, there are many people that uh, came our way. So, uh, so it was, I think it was relatively, relatively easy. Yeah. That's amazing. And then what have sort of been the business strategies once you did that and you found the right space, you negotiated for the space, and then you launched and you were able to do these events and do this marketing and get it to 100% occupancy in two months, which is amazing. What have been your business strategies for continuing to maintain occupancy and then ultimately to scale and expand? Because you're now four buildings. Uh, Yeah, so there are no four properties Basically, our strategy is to maintain the vibes and maintain the active community year round. So there is no like down months, although like there is seasonality, but, you know, we don't scale down on the event side. There is weekly something several times a week actually going on. Then what we also do, we partner with nomadic communities So, for example, Digital Nomad Girls, we love hosting, co-hosting something with them. I don't know, that could be parties, that could be meetups, that could be something else. And then other nomads that own, like, their micro-communities, we're more than happy to help up. I mean, even if, like, the community host is not on the island, we're happy to keep the legacy and keep hosting, let's say, a monthly meetup for whichever group. So... This is, we're just the community center. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about specifically what would someone's experience be like uh, to come and stay at ReStation? Sure. Uh, You know, how long do most people stay? What can they expect when they arrive and for the duration of their Mm -hmm. stay? What is it like? 
Yeah. So here, I think it's very important for us to the whole notion about setting the expectations because we're definitely not a camp. So we don't like look after people 24 seven. I think the best experience, the people that stay about four to six weeks, and that's our average. So four to six weeks or like now there's, for example, Ben who's with us for like three, four months. And uh, Morgan was also like, what, three, four months. So three, four months would be like on the longer side. One week would be probably the shortest. One thing that I hear all the time, the feedback is that people meet very long lasting relationships, like build long lasting relationships and uh, meet potential partners, meet people that they really click with. So what is it like? It's just uh, small things that we do for the community. It's just making people come together, share food or go out together or have a meaningful conversation. Stop for a second, take a look around who's around you. Like, you know, make sure you met everybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I think it's really significant because as nomadic travelers, right, the social sustainability pillar in life is really, really important to maintain. And sometimes if you're a solo traveler, it can become very lonely very quickly. And so the co-living space, I think, is a really, really important concept because you can come to a place you've never been. Like if you like, I'd never been to Grand Canaria before oh. I came here, right? Never been, and I came and I checked into the checked into restation, and all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of people that are. So I have my own room, right? I mean, just to set yeah. explain to people my experience, I have my own room, which is a large, very nice bedroom and an ensuite bathroom. So I have my own space right? Which I can spend my time there. But then there is also a large shared kitchen so I can grocery shop. I can keep my food there. I can cook food. And then there's a common space where you can work, hang out, that sort of thing. And then there's other people that are staying in the same space who also share the common areas. And in so doing, you can meet them and interact with them informally uh, by just running into them. But also then there are organized meetups and events and things like that where you are all going together, which is a, you know, sort of an organized connection. So even for people that might be more introverted or might not be like, you know, into just striking up conversations, Mm. there's organized ways to connect and meet with people. And the point is that the other people that live here also want to meet you. Yeah, exactly. And so you can just arrive somewhere and have a community that's waiting for you. They want to meet you. They want to interact with you. And I will tell you, the people I've met here, some of the people you just mentioned, are super interesting, very well-traveled, really dynamic, you know, entrepreneurs and people that have amazing experiences. And we've been just out having dinner and having drinks in the evening with people that I didn't know before I got here and now I know them and now we're connected on so many levels and we even, you know, have all sorts of things in common and, and we'll be connected for quite some time. So it's been, it's been awesome. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that's the co-working concept. I think it's awesome what you've done and I think it's really cool how you're, how you're scaling here on the Island and you're up to four properties. Now I also want to talk about your other business that you founded in 2017, Nomad Train. Oh, yeah. But for people that haven't heard about it, what is the Trans-Siberian Railway? And then Mm -hmm. what was the business, the Nomad Train business that you built around that? And what is it? Trans-Siberian is a a railroad from Moscow to Vladivostok, which is the furthest point in Russia. Or like, you know, you can say that it's the railway from Moscow to uh, Beijing, or like Moscow to Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Mongolia. All of this is Trans-Siberian. Sometimes people say, oh, there is Trans-Siberian and Trans-Mongolian. All of this is Trans-Siberian. Like, it's like Trans-Siberian is the railroad network. 
You just have to go for a long time on the train, and it's 200 years old. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's arguably the most famous train route in the it world. It is totally the bucket list travel yeah. for everyone, and you can never experience so much diversity and so much of different beautiful, beautiful landscapes and the world passing by the window of the train, and you're just there, choo-choo. It's <laughs> amazing. Well, so let me give you my sort of full context. Before I met you or heard about anything about yeah. Nomad Train, I had re- been researching the Trans-Siberian Railway because, of course, it is this legendary bucket list you totally. know, item, uh, probably the most famous train ride in the world, and just absolutely supposed to be totally epic and legendary. And as I started researching it, all of the comments that I was reading on, you know, wherever, Lonely Planet, TripAdvisor, like any of these kind of comment forums was that it's very complicated to do, especially if you're not a Russian speaker, you know, to book the train. And then if you want to get off at yeah. the different stops and see the different places and get back on the train and do the stuff, like that's a very cumbersome, challenging experience if you're not a Russian speaker to figure all that out and book all your stuff. And so you should really go through some kind of travel agency. And then, of course, there's the complexity of, you know, certain nationalities getting visas to Russia. It's like American, it's a fairly, if you're an American like I am, that's a fairly cumbersome process to get the Russian visa and sort that whole thing out. And you have to have an invitation letter in order to even apply for a visa, which where am I going to get an invitation letter? And, you know, there's all of these different things that, so I'm just like, wow, like that's an insanely epic bucket list experience, but that is a lot of freaking work to try to figure out how to do all of that. I'll put that on my, on my back burner. And then, and then, and then all of a sudden I learned about Nomad Train and I was just like, Oh, yeah, you know, like, I and know. so, and I, but I want you guys to talk about that because yeah. what you basically did is you understood the challenges and the pain points that I had yeah. uncovered, right? It was absolutely the same for us. So we're the three co-founders, right? And I'm a Russian passport holder and uh, my other co-founder is German and the other one is also Russian, but A, we never had the time to do that and B, it's, it's cumbersome even for a Russian, I'm telling you, like, I can't even imagine how much effort it could take to a foreigner to, you know, like to plan the whole thing. Because each one of us, like from the the co-founding team, we did some parts of Trans-Siberian before actually uh, co-founding the normal train. But it's like a lot of work to understand what's interesting, what's not, and how exactly you book the bloody train tickets. And <laughs> and like you know, and Russia is a it's an amazing is an amazing country, but it's definitely not made for tourism. It's just when you go to the small places, even there like cities where you have millions of people, you frequently meet locals that have never been abroad, they have never met a foreigner in their life. And there's no infrastructure. I mean, when we get in the city, we take over the whole co-working space, like the only. It's just very complicated to plan the journey in a way that is pleasant and it's not really mass tourism-like. But Trans-Siberian is amazing. It's definitely a life-changing experience. It's not only about the whole trip itself in Russia, but, you know, it's we're changing the country. We're getting from Russia to Mongolia and Mongolia being one of the most unexplored countries in the world. It's like unbelievable uh, landscapes. There are like so many things that you can do after you arrive to Ulaanbaatar. And that's like a cherry on top, right? Because people enjoy so much the actual experience in Russia. But then uh, when we get to Mongolia, it's 
It's even, wow. So can you talk specifically about what is Nomad Train? What is the value proposition and the sure. offering to customers? Which as soon as, literally as soon as I saw it, I like I, I reached out immediately. Like I contacted immediately and I said, the earliest that I can do it is this yeah. date, but like take my money. Like I'm in. <laughs> like as soon as I saw what you guys had done, I was in immediately. But can you explain what yeah. that value proposition is? Sure, yeah. So basically for me, Nomad Train is really a passion project because, you know, like I really like promoting Russia as a country since I, I I mean, I don't live there, but so but that's the only thing I can give back. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the value proposition is that we cover the Trans-Siberian route from Moscow to Ulaanbaatar. We do 24 hours on the train and then make a stop for three days in the city where we get a comfortable hotel, guaranteed Wi-Fi at a co-working space. And we get some ground excursions, so like uh, trips with our team leader who's always on the train with the group. And while we're on the train, we get all the food, which is also quite nice. So you get to eat on the train. You don't have to worry about what you have to take on the train. Obviously, you can order, you can't order delivery on the train. So yeah, we get hot food there. And it's like local experience. It's 100% local. It's definitely not the typical touristy train that you'll take. It's just the casual way of going from point A to point B and detoxing a little bit, bonding strongly with people who are together with you because we're all hardcore nomads and really all of us are really interesting people that uh, benefit a lot from being together on this journey. Well, yeah, so it's amazing. So on the one hand, you guys handle all the logistics we do, yeah. Which That's are, definitely covered. Yeah. Which are not only the logistics of the train tickets, mm-hmm. but at the stops, you've covered the accommodations and you've covered the co-working access with Wi-Fi. So if people need to do work and they're concerned about the Wi-Fi on the train yeah, and all that kind done. of stuff, yeah, for sure. mm-hmm. then they've got the co-working access at the stops, which for me, I was like, you know, ding, like all my check boxes started going, right? Like handful just yeah, of my tickets. Because we designed it for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. And you go with a community of like 30 people. Yeah. Which it's is quite, amazing. Yeah, it's quite cool. I mean, it could be slightly less or slightly more. We're aiming to get to 30, but even if we are 15, I'm sure it's it's an amazing experience. Even if we're uh, 40, I'm sure it's going to be fine. Like our goal is 30. I think that's what we are going to do this year. Yeah, well, I've even got friends of mine that are already coming because I told them about it. I was like, I'm going to go <laughs> do this thing. And they're like, you know, the, the same mentality as me. They're like, you're doing the Trans-Siberian and they're bringing nomads and this, doing all the logistics and you got co-working and you got this like where do I sign up yeah it's like you know boom boom so like I already have you know a handful of my nomad friends that are going to come with me because I told them I was doing it uh and I'm super excited to meet the other people that come so cool. I think it's going to be it's going to be I'm totally, sure you're totally amazing. It. I'm sure it's going to yeah. be a blast yeah and then we end up in Mongolia right so we go from we go yeah. from Moscow so what I'm doing with my um American visa I have a 30-day visa which I yeah. got which by the way that's the other thing that your team Olga in particular shout out to Olga by the way I hope yeah. she listens to this episode she's amazing. She's been so helpful and she helped me to go through all of the different visa uh, mm-hmm. step processes. So as an American, it is a pretty cumbersome process. You have to have all of this information. You have to have an invitation letter, which you guys provide. You have to have all these details you know, to fill out the American visa application, which is cumbersome. And you provide all that information and tell us exactly yeah. how to do it. And then Olga was on with me, WhatsApp, you know, how did it go? You didn't have any follow-up questions and it was a follow-up thing and she got it to me immediately and I got it in. And so I got a 30-day visa. So what I'm going to do is go to St. 
Petersburg for one week and then go to Moscow for one week and then jump on the train in Moscow and then have my final two weeks, you know, be on the yeah. train and end in Mongolia. So I'm going to use my full 30 days in Russia. Because you have to. Because yeah. If you've never been to Russia, I mean, that's, yeah. you know, you, you have to. Right. And then we end in Mongolia, which I'm ecstatic about seeing. Well, I've heard it's yeah, you've got to use your time in Mongolia because Mongolia is, you know, it's a separate chapter. It's totally amazing. And from Ulaanbaatar, there's like the whole bunch of things that you can do. You can explore picture-perfect landscapes, horse riding, and staying in like, you know, yurts. And some of them even have Wi-Fi. It's like, can you imagine it like, you know, a native house, like like the little yurt with a Wi-Fi? I know, like, like I probably sound like a proper millennial, but... <laughs> it's so amazing. Amazing. I'm yeah. so excited for my yeah, yeah. And then, you know, like the best thing that happens is since I'm a, I'm a, I'm a true living enthusiast, so I have to mention that because uh, what happens on the train stays on the train. No. <laughs> so people bond really well and because it's a small space. So you really, you know, like meet people, talk a lot, and then you end up hanging out with them for a really long time. Then after Mongolia, people will typically go to, for example, Beijing. It's like a really, really typical next kind of a go-to point. Right. Or like then uh, Southeast Asia. So uh, lots of normal trainers like, you know, end up in Chiang Mai after or like, yeah, Chiang Mai would be. But you can continue on the train from Mongolia straight out to Beijing. And you can literally take it all the way to the coast. It's another 24 hours. We haven't included that because then from Mongolia, there are like many people want to stay in Mongolia. That's why we kind of decided from very beginning that we're going to stop there to let people some space. And then if they want to continue, you guys can do that. Yeah. I'm so excited to see Russia. I've never been, and it's been on my list for quite a while. And I'm going to be able to both see Russia and do the Trans-Siberian in the same trip. And I'm I'm stoked for it. It's going to be amazing. Well, I'm stoked for you. <laughs> All right. So let me ask you, I want to ask you a few other sort of business questions and you know life life questions as well one of the things that i think is really impressive about you and i uh, i want to ask you for details on this you you're 30 years old you are a wife and mother of two small children and you are the founder and owner of multiple businesses in multiple countries i want to ask you about your productivity strategies and how you structure your day to Mm -hmm. be a wife, a mother, a business owner, and just this, you know, super dynamic serial entrepreneur. How do you structure your day? How do you manage your time? What are your strategies? You know, one thing that I don't do, (laughs) I don't Instagram because if I was Instagramming my life, it would not be pretty. Actually, it looks it looks so hectic. Like it looks so like not, you know, like I don't have time for setting up a perfect picture. Like, seriously, this is not a joke. If you guys look at my Instagram, it's almost dead. I've got loads of kids' pictures from from the weekends, but really, like, I've got no time to do any social media because it's it has, like, really poor ROI for me. This is one thing. But in terms of structuring, I have to say that at work, I'm a machine. And my husband makes fun of me because I'm a machine. And this is true. I have to be very, very, very um, rigorous on uh, how I work because I want to be completely with my family when I'm with them. 
I think it's just not there if I'm looking at my phone or thinking of something and trying to be at the same time with my family. I think it's just not fair to them. And also it's just not a good experience uh, for, for anyone. I mean, like, it's just, you know, the, the effect of being present. And if any of you guys do that, you should definitely rethink your strategy. I'm really up for this separation in your mind. So kind of, you know, set the boundaries. So yeah. And yeah, like if you want a little bit about my processes, I can explain a little bit about how that works. I start my week typically on Sunday or on Monday morning and Sunday night or Monday morning. And I started off with planning the week. And how I do that is typically just uh, maybe 10 minutes of my time, but it's very, very important. And since I implemented this system, it has been a total life changer for me, a total life changer. So what I do, I (laughs) split my life on all my projects and every week, so I count weeks in a year, you know, like, uh, so for example, now we are what in like week 14, probably. And every week I would plan up to three key uh, action points per project. So each one of my businesses represents a project. So for example, Restation Co-Living and Normal Train and J-Study. So those are all the active projects in my life. And then also there will be, you know, like health and well-being as another project and then family as another project. <laughs> like, I don't want to sound very pragmatic. And then every now and then there will be additional projects that just kind of come up. So for example, I was mentoring one startup and it pop up on my list for two or three weeks. And then, yeah, so I would, uh, I would create this to-do list for a week. So three items per project, not more than three. Otherwise, it gets too crowded. Sometimes I would set an actual goal plus a stretch goal per like project. And then every day, I would start my day with actually blocking time for each one of these items. So action points. So for example, two, three hours, for example, from nine to 12 to work specifically on only one thing. During this time, it will be deep work time. Uh, So it means that I'm disconnected. This way I will just tick off stuff from my to-do list. I mean, there are like loads of details into that, but that's like the basis. You can go into the details. I mean, I want to try to... Sure. I mean, mean, you you are quite, I find you quite amazing in terms of all that you are able to do and the caliber at which you're Mm -hmm. able to do it. And so to the extent that you can provide tactical details of exactly Mm -hmm. how you produce and achieve the output and the results that you do. I think that's huge value. So if you want to go deeper and sure. explain what you mean, that'd be Yeah, amazing. I can definitely, you know, I can definitely explain a little bit into detail uh, how that works. So basically, imagine you created this list of things that you need to achieve per week. For me, it's very important also to dedicate time there for health and fitness because that's an essential productivity boost for me. So, and it doesn't mean that, so for example, in my health and fitness section, there'll be, I don't know, uh, I fast, for example, twice a week. So that will be there as well. And I exercise, like I work out, I don't know, could be like three times a week. So it's also on the to-dos and uh, I need to make sure that, uh, uh, like there's also like family sections. I need to do, uh, so I need to make sure that uh, I do ABCs with my older child daily. uh, Because if I don't put it there, I mean, of course, I'm probably going to do that, but uh, I might forget or I might just, you know, like it's as important as work. 
it's really has a strong priority. It should be there. And so then every morning I would block time on the calendar because one thing is setting your to-dos. For example, on Monday, I want to, I don't know, let's say meet my partner and then I want to, I don't know, let's say do uh, create this, I don't know, website layout and confirm it with designer. But if you don't assign it to a specific slot on the calendar, you might end up just like losing the track of time. And also if like for me, it's very important to assign slots on the calendar to see how much time they actually take. Because sometimes you will see that the most important tasks will take you 30 minutes. And then you're like, well, where did the rest of the day go? So on my calendar, I actually see where the whole day goes. I'm productive every time, every like literally every 30 minutes of my day. My day is broken to like 30 minute intervals. Every 30 minutes, I'm productive because I'm paying for daycare for two children. So I've got to make much more than them <laughs> during the time when I'm productive. So I have to be very, very productive. There is a lot of pressure. <laughs> That's it. Which, by the way, makes me feel very honored and privileged to have basically spent the entire day with you today. It's been really <laughs> awesome that you've been able to take the time out and uh, and we've been able to hang out and uh, I mean, you know, chat great. about I mean, I don't do it every week, but you know, like, uh, it's also uh, the perk of being productive because I don't feel guilty of, you know, taking the day off every now and then or just like spend the, d- the day the way I want to spend the day because I know how much value I produce on my regular day and I don't let myself slack off there is really, I don't need an extra motivation. <laughs> I'm very motivated. And we did strategize about business stuff today and have a lot of constructive Oh, absolutely. And, I think that was a, that. like, you know, there was a lot of, you know, like, uh, I'm going to report back, but uh, I'm sure there's five, six figure things there. For sure. And our conversation <laughs> sure. today, I think so. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, as you're talking about things that are productive and, and all that kind of stuff, and sometimes it's the deep work and grinding out and knocking you know, out things you need Definitely. to do. But in some cases, 100%. it's strategy, you know, running into other entrepreneurs. Like, I think it was amazing. You know, you and I yeah. basically met each other and we we're like, wait a minute, like, let's just have some business strategy discussion. And you were asking me questions about your business yeah. and, and, you know, advice that I could give from my experiences. Absolutely. And I was asking you, of course, about your businesses and advice that you could give on your experiences. And we just had like a really constructive yeah. business discussion for most of the afternoon. That's the thing. I think it's uh, always so like important to acknowledge that most of the things are transferable. That there is so much that we can all like learn from each other. That different industries feed into each other. In the end of the day, it's really about how that can be helpful to another person. How this can be helpful to me. Yeah. All right. So let me ask you one more main question, and then we're going to jump into the lightning cool. round. Um, I want to ask you though about your you you are really an expert i think in growth hacking mm-hmm. and and you know that's how you sort of position some of your you know your core competency and i want to just ask you for your advice on that what do you mean by growth hacking exactly sure. how have you done it and what advice can you give to other entrepreneurs about growth mm-hmm. hacking sure absolutely so from my perspective it's rapid growth and 
rapid growth with certain sustainability and uh, and minimal resources, optimizing your available resources for rapid growth. And for me, this is not only finding the right product market fit, but also about being able to push the right buttons within your audiences, finding right metrics that will be key for you and uh, be able to pursue the strategies. Not only knowing all this in theory, but actually, you know, being very practical and going after that. Can you give an example? Yeah, I'm going to give you an example of my businesses and hopefully, you know, like you guys can get that. For example, for co-living, which is very easy for everybody to understand, there are two key metrics. One of them is occupancy rate and then there is the costs. So I just have to watch these two and I need to make sure that my occupancy rates are as high as they can be and that my costs are as low as they can be. That's where the margins come from. That's where the money is made in this, like, you know, in between these two. For every business, there's pretty much, I think, no more than two, three metrics. And as soon as you keep those under control, you're growing because you need always to create space for your business to grow and watch the numbers. This is really, really core watching where, yeah, so where your numbers are landing, what are the key numbers, knowing them, yeah. And then just working on optimization strategies and working them, working right? on optimization and never use hope marketing strategies. Never thinking of well, it's okay, let's throw it out of people and see what happens. Nothing's gonna happen. Nothing's gonna happen. Like you just need to watch the details of what's happening with your product or service. Yeah, I think a lot of the you know what I know about you and the way you run your businesses is the extent to which you meticulously focus on those quantitative metrics and you focus on them very intensely and then you you optimize and you. You test and you optimize and you test and you optimize. Yeah, and you totally. Test and like you optimizing, optimizing, testing, and different platforms have different rules of the game, and different businesses have completely different metrics. So everyone needs to identify those and know where you're, what you're after. Awesome, Maria. At this point, are you ready to move into the lightning round? Yes, let's, let's go. Do it. <laughs> the lightning round. All right, we've got uh, just a final around the final uh, bit of our bottle of wine here. Oh my god, uh, that's right! Yeah. So it's definitely uh, it's definitely time for the lightning round to close this out. First question is: I know that in a lot of your career, you have uh, teamed up with business partners for your different ventures. Yeah. What is the key to selecting amazing business partners? Yeah. So for me, I think there will be three things. First one is a comparable sense of uh, a comparable ambition, I guess. So I wouldn't typically be hanging out with somebody who wants to open a corner shop unless I want to open a corner shop. And the second one is the level of trust. So I'm definitely more like to start a joint project together with somebody who I already know. And skills is such an important thing as well. This is like also, uh, it's crucial. It's just, I guess I just take it for granted. Yeah. yeah. People have to be skillful. Yeah. But when you know <laughs> like them, you know, yeah, when you know them, you know what their skills are. Yeah. When they're your yeah, friend yeah, yeah. or your, you know, whatever sure. it is, you know them and you know what their skills are and you're able to say, okay, this is the right person. Because obviously you wouldn't go into business with just any friend because they're a friend. No, but, no, no, definitely not. But it allows you to sort of understand the skill sets and select the right people. So totally agreed with that. What is one book that has influenced you that you would recommend to people? It's Cal Newport and it's Deep Work. 
So that's just, it was not necessarily mind-blowing, but it gave me permission to do so many things that I'm doing. Actually, my whole strategy of building my week, my day is inspired by the book. So I really encourage everyone who's juggling several things or just like, you know, feels the urge to constantly be checking his email, being on top of things, on top of Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. So all these things, just get the book, read Colin Newport and breathe in, breathe out. Awesome. That's it. What is one app or productivity tool or gadget that you're currently using you'd recommend to people? I like, like recently checking out my sleep quality. That's just like for monitoring purposes. I guess I'm still learning about that. I think it's one of the insights that I learned recently that everyone will have different sleep patterns and it really influences also the quality of our well-being and the quality of our life. And you should know also what helps you sleep better, what helps you kind of relax better during the night. But for this, you need to experiment. So I'm still experimenting. And, uh, you know, if you guys have uh, some interest in, like, you know, the biochemistry and the way your personal body works, I believe each body is different. So get yourself some type of sleep measurement bracelet. I'm not after whatever brand, but, you know, there are multiple. Awesome. Knowing everything that you know now in your 30 years of life and your entrepreneurial journey, if you were to go back to when you were 18 and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self with all the lessons that you've learned now, what piece of advice would you give your 18-year-old self? I'd actually give the same advice uh, that my father gave me and I'd say, keep investing into education, keep learning and invest into that, invest in yourself. It's the best investment you can make. Invest in yourself. Awesome. Of all the places that you've traveled, which are now well over 50 countries, what would you say are your top three favorite travel destinations you'd recommend people check out? Very, very easy for me. Number one, Cape Town and South Africa. Take a road trip somewhere. Number two, Iran. Iran is amazing, so underdiscovered. Iran is totally epic and and totally not dangerous. Don't like, you know, guys, don't freak out about Iran. And number three would be probably actually Russia, the top three on my chart today. It's amazing. There's so much about Russia that, and I've never been, I'm so excited to go. It's been on my list for so long. And there's been just so much that I've been learning and hearing about Russia. For example, something that a lot of people may not even know is how serious the women's basketball scene is in Russia. For people that follow, (laughs) for people that follow women's basketball in the United States, okay, the WNBA players, the best female basketball players in the United States, which are also the best female basketball players in the world, right? They are paid in the offseason to go and play in these leagues in Russia and in Siberia, right? And so the top WNBA players in the world play in Siberia in the offseason. So you know, there's a one of the teams is uh, Ekaterini. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly. In the middle of Siberia, where they have Diana Taurasi and Brittany Griner playing on the same team. I mean, they have the best of the best in the world that play over there in the in the off season, and they value women's basketball so much. So Diana Taurasi has for years been this number one player in the world in women's basketball. Yeah. 
And they value women's basketball over there so much that her Russian team offered her to buy out her, this was in, I think, the 2015 season, to buy out her WNBA contract, meaning we're going to pay you your Russian salary and we're going to pay you your WNBA salary for you to sit out and not play the WNBA season so you don't risk injury before you come back for the Russian season. And she took the deal, and the best player in the world sat out the WNBA season because her Russian team valued her so much that they paid her to do that. Russia. Yeah, that's <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, like, so, so, like, I'm like, oh my, and I'm like a huge women's one basketball those, fan, right? One of I those mean, countries. I mean, I've had like WNBA tickets and in, in when I lived in LA and like all this stuff. So, I'm a huge women's basketball fan. So, when I started learning about like what was going on in Russia and how much people appreciate it even more so to a large extent than, than in the U.S., I was just like, I have to go. Like, this is yet another thing about Russia that, like, I have to go and experience. So I want to go back to Russia in, like, during basketball season, which is probably, like, April or so, and, yeah. uh, and see some women's games of the players that I know from the U.S. who are literally all <laughs> over there in Russia playing. Oh, my God. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Awesome. Cool. So last question is... What at this point in your life are your top three bucket list travel destinations, mm-hmm. places you've never been that you most want to go right now? Right. I really, really want to go to rural China. You know, like I've been to many Chinese cities, but it always left me so longing for an actual adventure. I think this country is so full of bizarre things that I really want to explore. It's pretty much like you doing the Trans-Siberian. I really want to get lost somewhere in rural China. So that's number one. Number two, I think by today, my husband really sold me into Japan. It's been just, you know, the whole, yeah, it's been promised to me for so long. And, uh, and yeah, I just kind of, you know, now I'm curious. Okay. <laughs> and then finally, number three is Georgia, because I made two attempts to visit and like they were really, really, I was the Georgian border, but being in between like Georgia and Russia, there are so many political things that I was not able to cross twice. And it feels a little bit like, come on, seriously, I need to make a third attempt now. And I know it's going to be an amazing experience because Georgia is an amazing country. And I know you're going. I am going in uh, before I, right before I come to Russia. Yeah, yeah I've heard amazing things about the country of Georgia. Super yeah. excited it's, to see it's, that. It's like, it's a truly amazing country. I know because I've got so many friends from there. And Russia is actually infused with Georgian culture and specifically gastronomy. I cook actually quite a lot of Georgian food at home, but... Now I want to eat it in Georgia. Well, next time. So awesome. All right, (laughs) Maria, at this point, I want to ask you how people can find out more about your businesses. How can they find out about Nomad Train? How can they stay at Rest Station? And if they want to follow you personally, or I don't know if you're on social media or if your your businesses are on social media or something like that, where can they go to find you? And we're going to link all this up in the show notes, by the way. So uh, everything that you tell them, they can also just go to themaverickshow.com. We're going to have direct links to everything, but tell them how they can uh, find out about you. Yes. The easiest way to learn about Nomad Train is to go on the website, nomadtrain.com. 
co and restation is the same restation.co so ceo i'm actually quite open about connecting with people on linkedin if that's a professional thing and it's maria sirotkina on linkedin i think i'm pretty easy to find with restation or nomad train because both of those are there and you steady and i guess we can also mention some specials for the maverick show listeners on the show notes if you want to share that that'd be awesome yeah you're gonna uh you you said that uh, any maverick show listeners can actually get a discount if they want to join us on the nomad train which by the way is actually literally if they go in the on the september 2019 nomad train i'm actually personally going to be there so you'd literally literally be joining you'd literally be joining me uh and uh, maria will give you a discount uh, we're doing a 50 euro discount on the train for september i'm happy to have people at restation for a free weekend if you guys are booking a month we're adding a weekend on top of this month stay of rest at restation so this i think gives a pretty much an 80 euro value to your uh, booking and uh, you can use this anytime during uh, 2019 if you guys want to chill for a little while in Gran Canaria, you know, like the Canary Islands are welcoming year round. There is no seasonality here, really. <laughs> uh, yeah. And if you've never been to the Canary Islands, I highly recommend you check it out. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. And Restation is a really fun place to do it because you're going to land here. You're going to get an awesome community from the minute that you get in. And even if you don't know anybody, you're going to have a community when you land and you get, uh, if you book a month, you get a free weekend. So that's an awesome uh, offer. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, thank you for having me, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, like the people that are uh, out there are always eager to also come and share stuff. So the more the merrier. Amazing. Well, we are uh, finished now with our bottle of wine, which means that oh it's gosh. time to finish the podcast. So Maria, oh, yeah, thank true. you. This is an amazing bottle, by the way. I'm yeah. literally going to link up this bottle in the show notes. <laughs> so if people want to go and find this wine, like yeah. this was an insane bottle of wine. Yeah, that was so good. Huh? It, I mean, was it was ridiculous. worth every cent of it. it really yes. was. So we're literally going to put the bottle of wine in the show notes. We're also going to put all the links, uh, how you can uh, find Maria. And uh, if you want to grab those discounts, want to join me on Nomad Train or any of the other stuff, just go to the maverickshow.com and you'll have all the direct links there. Maria, Thank you so much for being here. That was amazing. Awesome. Uh, Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.